Well, good morning, Center Church. Good morning. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate this ego boost, but I'm just going to tell you, lower your expectations. Lower your expectations. Well, let me introduce myself a little bit. I know by now you've probably seen me, you kind of recognize me, maybe you could pick me out if you were, you know, saw me at a store or something, but you might not know much about me. And my Christian journey really starts at age three, right? So this is when I sat down with, with my parents and, and I decided, yes, I wanted Jesus to come into my heart and be my savior and all that stuff that I had no, you know, no clue what it meant at the time. But this is really the beginning, it was the first memory I have of my Christian walk. And since then, I've, you know, I've had my ups and my downs, and we'll talk about some of that later. But eventually, my journey led me to Grace Christian University, right? So my, my dad, he was a student there. He worked there for 10 years. It seemed like a natural fit, and uh, it worked out pretty well. I managed to get a wife out of it, which is awesome. Um, and I'm getting a degree out of it, too. Uh, so I'll be graduating after next semester with a, a bachelor's in biblical studies uh, with a minor in biblical languages, so Greek and Hebrew. And we'll talk a little bit about that today as well. Um, going to Grace also allowed me to meet Peter Jones, um, who is homesick today, so we'll be continuing to pray for him. Um, but I met him. He connected me with Brendan, who was the worship leader before him, and that was about three years ago. I started playing here on and off, and um, rotating around at a few different churches, and now I've sort of settled here um, into an internship. So that's a little bit about me, and so I'm going to do two things here, and then I'm going to ask you something about you, because it's only fair. You know a little bit about me. Now I want to know something about you. So here are two things. Number one, look under your seat. There's going to be a small, well, it's not really a rock, but we're going to pretend it's a rock. Just go ahead and take that and if you would, just put that in whatever hand you're not going to use for the next 30 minutes, um, and just keep it there, and we'll talk about it eventually, okay? Second thing, I just want to pray really quick, all right? So if you just join me, and we're going to pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for the opportunity to be here. Lord, snow and all, we know you can turn everything into a positive, every negative into a positive. And Lord, we just thank you that we are, are here and we can read from your word, Lord. And I would just pray that as I go through your word and um, as I teach the, the only truth this world has ever known, Lord, the only um, true word that's been brought to this earth, Lord, your word, um, I would just pray that anything that I say that is in alignment with your word and your will is remembered. And anything that I say that is not in alignment with your word and your will is immediately and permanently forgotten, Lord. Lord, I just pray for everyone here as they go about their, the rest of their day and the rest of their week after the service. Lord, I would just pray that, that something that you do in this room today would touch them and stick with them, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. All righty. So here's my question that I have for you. And we're kind of jumping in to the deep end. Not literally, because I do not want to fall into this baptismal today, but we're sort of figuratively jumping into the deep end. I want to ask you a very serious question. And I want you to really consider it and be honest with yourself. Have you ever doubted your faith? Any aspect of it? Maybe the whole thing. Maybe you've doubted that every single thing is true. Maybe you've doubted that the Bible is true. Maybe you've doubted that there's a God. Or maybe you just have some small questions. And you just haven't really found a satisfying answer yet. Maybe you're struggling with something like, the Trinity, like, oh, how, you know, how can God be three and also be one? 
or maybe there's a verse or passage that you've read that you're just sort of confused about and it doesn't make much sense and maybe some things that happened in the Old Testament don't align with what you believe about who God is. Whatever it may be, have you ever doubted? Have you had those thoughts? Or maybe it's not you. Maybe you're solid. Maybe you grew up in a Christian home and you have not left or questioned it for a second. Okay, great, good job. But maybe there's someone you know who is doubting or who has doubted. Maybe someone you know has never believed. They didn't grow up in a Christian home. They never really saw it as an option. They've always kind of thought it was ridiculous. Maybe someone you know who, or someone you raised or were raised with, right, grew up as a Christian just like you and maybe went through some doubt and lost their faith. This is, I mean, this is happening all around us, right? And sometimes it's happening even when we don't know it. There might be people in our lives who are doubting and who are questioning and have some concerns, but they're afraid to share. Because doubt can be scary, can be terrifying, right? When it's the end of the story. But luckily, if you find yourself in a place where you are doubting or you know someone who's doubting, they're not alone. And so I want to take you into John 20. The reference will be up on the screen just in case you forget. We're going to go to John 20, starting at verse 24. And it's a story that I'm sure you're familiar with. And it's one where we meet a character who has a nickname that lasts. And it's sort of an unfortunate nickname for him because it's sort of a negative thing. But it's Doubting Thomas, right? And so we'll meet Doubting Thomas here in, in John 20, starting at verse 24. It says this. Now Thomas, called Didymus, which means twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he replied, unless I see the wounds from the nails in his hands and put my finger into the wounds from the nails and put my hand into his side, I will never believe it. Eight days later, the disciples were again together in the house and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and examine my hands. Extend your hand and put it into my side. Don't continue in your unbelief, but believe. And Thomas replied to him, My Lord and my God. We meet this character, Thomas, who's going through a period of doubt. And I want to tell you a little bit about Thomas and why he may have been experiencing some of these doubts, some of these emotions, right? See, Thomas was probably a fisherman before Jesus called him. And we think this because when Jesus is crucified and the disciples think, okay, well, this whole thing is kind of blown up in our face. I guess we have to go back to what we know. Thomas goes back to being a fisherman. So we assume he was probably a fisherman before. And this could mean a few things for the life of Thomas. One, it could mean that that's just what his family did. They were fishermen. They had no upward social mobility. They were kind of stuck as fishermen. That's what they did. No chance for anything else. It could also mean that he received some education, and maybe him or a teacher or someone else didn't think he was quite ready, right? He wasn't really the best in his class. Maybe he didn't really know his Bible well. He had trouble memorizing it maybe, or maybe he was kind of afraid to talk about it with other people, whatever it may have been. And so he might have never pursued a higher education, right? Training with a rabbi directly. It could also mean 
that he did pursue that higher education. He was following closely with a rabbi and learning directly from a rabbi. And this would have involved an intense period of questioning from the rabbi to see if you're ready and prepared. There's not an opportunity for growth here. It's a one shot. You get one chance. If you fail, too bad. Go learn your family trade, which may have been the case, right? And so Thomas, his life may have been marked by failure and disappointing his family. And then Jesus comes along, and Jesus tells him to follow him and be his disciple, right? Jesus is his rabbi. Thomas is the disciple. This is a second chance. And it's not just any old second chance. It's a second chance of a lifetime because this rabbi isn't just another teacher. He's the Messiah. He's the Christ. It's life-changing, right? Imagine, you know, maybe you're just out playing football with your friends, playing catch, whatever it may be, and, and a guy comes over, and he's kind of looking, he's observing, and he, he walks over to you, and he says, you know, you're pretty good. You know, I've seen you throwing. Well, I'm, you know, I represent the Detroit Lions, and we need a new quarterback right now, so I'm going to give you $10 million to come and play for us for a year. How does that sound? Like, you're in, right? I mean, it doesn't matter if you're good at football or if you even like it. Maybe you were just out there playing because your friends peer pressured you. Doesn't matter. If you are offered $10 million, you take the opportunity, right? It's the financially smart thing to do. And what would you do next? Well, probably change everything about your life, right? I mean, maybe you start buying stuff in advance. You know, you take out a loan. Maybe you cut off some, some friends and family members who might, you know, want too big of a piece of that $10 million. Maybe you uh, quit your job. Maybe say some things to people that you shouldn't say. But who cares? Because you're going to go play for the Lions, and you're going to be rich. And then imagine, maybe two months into your year, you get called into an office. And it's the same guy who was scouting you. And he looks at you, and he says, hey, man, um, got to be honest. We're bankrupt. We have nothing. The Lions are no longer going to exist. We're going to move this team to some other garbage place like Ohio, and we, we're done. We're sorry. We can't pay you. Well, your life, your once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, everything you had planned for yourself is crashing and burning all around you. You've said things you can't get back. You've done things you can't undo. And naturally... When us humans start to feel sad, we like to turn that immediately, because sadness is kind of a reflection of our own failures, we like to turn it into anger, because that puts the blame on other people. And it's a little bit easier for us to deal with. And I wouldn't be surprised if, like you would be mad, if you were like, hey, you guys knew you were going to go bankrupt, and you still promised me this money, I changed everything. Like, I imagine Thomas is feeling the same way, right? He's probably thinking that he's been tricked and conned and lied to. This Jesus who said he was the Messiah, he was supposed to overthrow the Roman government and establish Jerusalem as the, the sole power of the world. And he was a liar because he died on a cross, a death so embarrassing that even one of the members of the Sanhedrin who condemned Jesus went and took his body down from the cross and put it in his own family's tomb because it would have been shameful for the Jews to leave the body on the cross. I mean, realistically, Thomas probably hates Jesus at this point. And I wouldn't be surprised 
if part of the reason why he, he's so intent on feeling the wounds of Jesus isn't just so he can kind of feel around in there and get evidence, but it's so he can put his hand in his side and twist it and make Jesus experience more pain, make Jesus experience the same hurt that he's feeling. It makes sense, right, why he would reject promise in the words of his 10 closest companions who come to him and say, we've seen the risen Jesus, right? The lions, they're coming back to Detroit. You're back on. Your $10 million are coming back to you. Well, he doesn't believe it. He says, no, I've been tricked by this once. I'm not doing this again. And so he says this phrase, and, and I'll show you here in the Greek, and it comes up in a second. There we go. So I'll, I'll say these words, and then I'd like you to repeat them after I say them, right? So the first word is ooh, ooh, may, may, pistuso, pistuso. And so what this means, like very woodenly translated, is not, not, I will believe. And this is what Thomas said. And so I know what you're thinking. You're like, okay, I see where we're going with this. I get the point. It's been mistranslated. It's a double negative. It's not Thomas saying that he's never going to believe. It's just Thomas saying, like, I'm not going to not believe, right? I'll come around at some point. So maybe we've missed the meaning of the story, right? Well, not quite. See, unlike in English, where a double negative cancels out, in Greek, a double negative builds up. So it's not just Thomas saying, like, "Ah, I don't know, I'm not really not really a fan of this anymore. I'm not going to believe. No, Thomas is saying, I will never believe. I refuse absolutely to believe this again. He's emphatic about it. But then, when he encounters the risen Jesus, his emphatic doubt is transformed into an emphatic belief. And he says this phrase. He says, my Lord and my God. And this can be translated a couple different ways, right? So one, it could be what's called a, a, a nominative of address. In this case, right, Thomas would be addressing Jesus as Lord and God. He's ascribing that name to Jesus. It could also be what's called a predicate nominative, in which case it would be better translated in English to, it is my Lord and it is my God. Either way, he's identifying Jesus as Lord and God. And this is significant because he's not just making an exclamation. He's not just saying, oh, my Lord, oh, my God, it's Jesus. He's real. He's not just doing this casually. You see, that phrase, Lord and God, is being used very specifically because this is the same way that the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Old Testament, so it's what the disciples would have read and been most familiar with, right? It's how the Septuagint renders the divine name, Yahweh Elohim. So Thomas, he's not just praising Jesus. He's not just exclaiming something. He's specifically naming Jesus as the God of the Old Testament, right? Now, some skeptics will say that this view of Christ as the God of the Old Testament developed maybe 100 years later. But we see it here a week after the resurrection, a week. Already they have the highest Christology, and so let's go back to the text for a moment. And after he exclaims this, after he identifies Jesus as Lord and God, Yahweh Elohim, Jesus says this in verse 29. Have you believed because you've seen me? 
Blessed are the people who have not seen and yet have believed. And so this is an interesting verse. And we tend to read it as a call to blind faith, right? Jesus is saying, blessed are those who believe without any evidence. Not quite. You see, New Testament translators note that Jesus is talking about his resurrection, right? So he's saying that blessed are those who, past tense, believed in Jesus based on his teachings and his miracles and his healings, right, through his fulfillments of the Old Testament prophecies before he gave this ultimate proof of his divine nature through the resurrection. He's not saying blessed are those who have blind faith. It's the ideal to recognize Jesus for who he is based on Scripture, right? But it's difficult. It's extremely difficult for humans. And in fact, it's dangerous. Because if we have blind faith in Christianity, then we have no better reason to be a Christian than to be a Hindu or a Buddhist or a Muslim or an atheist or whatever. In fact, if we are just going on blind faith, well, the best thing would be to just pick whatever religion makes your life better. So maybe for you, that's atheism. You want to do all the things that the Bible tells you not to do. You want to live a fun life. You want to go out and do everything that makes you happy now. It doesn't matter because you just have blind faith. You just have blind faith that God doesn't exist, right? It's dangerous to only go based on blind faith. And so this is why throughout the Old Testament, as Israel continues to fall into idolatry, God tells them, look, look at how I've defeated the armies and the gods of Egypt. Look at how I brought you out of slavery and fed you with manna and quail in the wilderness. Look at how I showed my glory at Sinai and drove the Canaanites from the promised land. Look at these signs and tell me, I dare you, tell me I'm not the most high. If we're supposed to have blind faith, why would Jesus have performed miracles? He would be contradicting himself. If he wants us to have blind faith, and yet he gives us all these proofs, all these reasons to believe that he's the Messiah, he would be contradicting himself. And the Holy Spirit, if he wanted us to have blind faith, he wouldn't have given us the gifts of of tongues and healing and prophecy to display the power and the truth of the gospel. But it's really, really sad. Because so many times when people, and especially young people, teenagers and young adults, when they have questions, when they have doubts, when they have things they're not sure about, or when they have a a friend or a family member who's going through a period of doubt, and they go to a church elder and try to get some advice, often what they get is just have faith. Or sometimes, even worse, they get this line, right? If you were a good Christian, you wouldn't need evidence. If you were a good Christian, you'd just believe. Church, can I be brutally, brutally honest with you? Saying that to a young person guarantees they'll leave the church. It guarantees that they will abandon you and everything that you've told them. We're not a religion of blind faith. We have evidence. We have reasons believe. And I think a part of this misunderstanding comes from a, a historical misunderstanding of how to translate the word faith. So the word faith in the Greek will be up here for you, another short short Greek lesson for you. But it's this word, it's pistis. And it appears in various different forms. But it means faith and belief, but it also means loyalty and 
obedience. And so N.T. Wright, who is one of the absolute premier Bible scholars of our time, he says that the call to faith is also a call to obedience. Because the way that the Bible teaches faith, it doesn't end at a, a mental or emotional conviction. It's not something that only happens in the head. It's something that you do and you live out actively. Biblical faith the kind of faith that the disciples had, the kind of faith that Thomas had after he had this experience with Jesus, the kind of faith that um, the patriarchs, Abraham and Moses, the kind of faith they have entails action. Biblical faith entails action. See, if faith was only having the right belief about Jesus, we'd find ourselves in an awkward predicament. Up on the screen for you will be uh, James 2.19. And James says this. You believe that God is one. Well and good. Even the demons believe that. And they tremble with fear. See, we find that demons know who Christ is and believe the right things about him all throughout the New Testament. Here's another example uh, in Luke 4, 41. Demons also came out of many, crying out, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. And Jesus suppresses what the demons are saying because he knows if they say he's the Messiah, right here, if they display the truth of who he is, there's going to be a stampede. Right? And his disciples and him would be at great risk, and he wouldn't be able to continue his ministry. And it's funny that the demons believe all the same things we believe. And they have better reason to believe it because they've seen it. But the demons have belief. They don't have faith. They aren't obedient to Christ. They aren't loyal to Christ. And this is the, one of the only things that really separates us from the demons. It's this, this life of faith, this doing of faith, right? And part of it is being a faithful and obedient learner. We need to know what we believe and why we believe it so that we can be strengthened in our own faith, but then also so that we can go and, and teach it and share it with others and evangelize, right? Because this is the most important part. It's not just about our own walk with Christ. It's not just about being secure ourselves, but it's about guiding everyone we can to a saving faith in Jesus. But we experience some roadblocks when we're doing this. How many of you have heard of, of deconstruction? You've heard that word before. It's sort of a trend among Christians, especially younger Christians. And the idea of deconstruction is that you tear down what you believe, right? You deconstruct what you believe, and your goal is to find out if it's true. And unfortunately, for many people, deconstruction is the end of the story. You deconstruct, and you're out. You decide, maybe this whole thing isn't for you. Maybe I've watched a, you know, a handful of YouTube videos made by atheist content creators, and yeah, I think I'm kind of out of this whole Jesus thing. And they leave it there. And so you might expect me to say, you know, just please, please don't deconstruct. It's so dangerous. Please don't think about what you believe. Please just have blind faith. But that's not what I'm saying. And I think by now you, you get that, right? Like, I want you to deconstruct. 
so that you can reconstruct. Deconstruct to reconstruct. If you're taking notes, there's the thesis. Make sure you get that one down. I want to take you to another verse quick. It'll be up on the screen for you. Uh, James 1, 2 through 4, and he says this. My brothers and sisters, consider it nothing but joy when you fall into all sorts of trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect effect, so that you will be perfect and complete, not deficient in anything. In my life, I have tested my faith. And I've fallen into trials. I specifically want to share with you what happened my freshman year of high school. Because, you know, I grew up in a Christian home and all was good. I never doubted. I came from this assumption that the God was real and the Bible was true. So I had no problem accepting miracles and all that. And I'm sitting, oddly enough, I don't know why I was reading my history textbook in the bathroom, but I remember sitting at the guest bathroom of, of the house I grew up in looking over my, my history textbook and looking at the picture, you know, where, like, the monkey evolves into the, the man, which is, like, not how that even works, but okay. Um, but I remember looking at this, and a question popped into my mind. I said, why did God create dinosaurs? Like, we don't see them in the Bible. We think that they were there. Like, we have these giant bones. Why would God create dinosaurs and not let me ride one. Like, why are they not here? I want to put on a cowboy hat and throw a saddle on a stegosaurus and go, like, velociraptor wrangling. Like, what was the point of God creating dinosaurs if, like, they're just going to go extinct and we didn't do anything with them? It didn't make sense to me. And so I went on this rabbit trail and found some videos online. And, of course, growing up in Hudsonville, I just sort of assumed that everyone's a Christian. And so I'm watching videos online, assuming that they're from Christians, but these guys are, like, talking about how the Bible isn't real and how none of this is real. I wasn't sure what to do. And by the grace of God, I, I was um, moved from Hudsonville High School to a homeschool co-op with about 10 other families, and it was all faith-based. And so I learned that there, there is a, a faith-based way um, to argue for God, right? There's a faith-based way to learn and have your education. And so it sort of rescued me from the pit, Right? And I learned, okay, well, there's, there's ways of reconciling dinosaurs and evolution, everything, to the Bible. And, you know, it was all the 6,000-year stuff, which I've sort of put behind me now. But I found that there are reasons to believe what I believe. And it sent me on this journey where I reconstructed my faith and came out with a much stronger, more robust belief, more genuine faith. And so you've been holding on to these, these stones this whole time. Hopefully you still have it. And I just want to take you back a little bit. I know it snowed this morning, so I'm sorry to bring up bad memories. But go back into the summer a little bit. Maybe you were at the beach, or maybe you went to uh, Frederick Meyer Gardens, and you went to the Japanese Garden. And they often have these sort of stacks of stones, right? And it's incredible, because it takes a lot of time and effort to balance all those stones perfectly. And they stay there for days and weeks and months. It's incredible how people do this. But you'll find... There's not a single stack of rocks that is built on a nice, round, spherical stone or that's built on one that's jagged and lumpy and off-kilter and off-balance. No, they're built on something more like what you're holding. It's, it's smooth. It's flat. It's stable. 
you see, when we go through this process of, of deconstruction and reconstruction, you can't build your foundation on something flawed. And what's the only thing that wasn't flawed that ever stepped foot on this earth? Jesus. You build your foundation on something perfect, and that something perfect is Jesus. And on top of that, that foundation stone, on top of that perfect cornerstone like we sang about earlier, right, you add all your fields of study, whatever you're interested in, apologetics, philosophy, science, biology, whatever it may be, you add those on top. But those can't be the foundation because it's human knowledge. It's, it's flawed. There are problems. You can be mistaken. Jesus can't be mistaken. You build your foundation on Jesus. And this gives us a firm foundation for when we're not only going through these questions and digging into things for ourselves, but also when we're teaching others, right? If we have that firm foundation, we can be solid and steady when we go and talk to people who maybe were never Christians in the first place, or maybe they believed at some point but deconstructed and lost the faith, or maybe they deconstructed and then reconstructed but did so in a way where they came out with a skewed view of the Bible and God and, and all this stuff. But even with Jesus as the cornerstone, sometimes our hearts or the hearts of those we're trying to reach are so hardened that no evidence will sway them. Reminds me of Pharaoh, right? When God hardened his heart so that he wouldn't let the Israelites go. Maybe that person with a hardened heart is you or friend, relative, one of your kids, one of your parents, a spouse, coworker. Sometimes the only thing that will convince and break through a hardened heart is a personal, unique experience with the risen Savior. And this is what Thomas had. And in fact, his, his emphatic refusal to believe was so revived by his experience with Jesus that he went on to become probably one of the greatest uh, missionaries of the 12 disciples. He was possibly the only one to go outside of the Roman Empire and go and preach to the, the Parthian Empire and to India because there's power in these experiences and there's power with us sharing them with others, with us sharing our personal unique experiences with Jesus and with the Holy Spirit and with God the Father, sharing that with others. There's just power in what we say in general right? John 1.1, 1, 1, what is Jesus? He's the Logos. He's the Word of God. And it's through the spoken Word of God that the universe and everything in it is created. And Jesus said that faith, even the size of a mustard seed, would give you the power to command a mountain to move, and it would be so. There's power in sharing. There's power in what we say to others but only when our foundation is Christ. We can break through those hardened hearts, including our own. It's kind of funny, in a sense. We use doubt, we use the process of doubting to break doubt. It's through our own deconstruction and reconstruction that we can bring the saving power of Jesus to everyone who's doubting. And so 
Lynn's going to provide me with some, some wonderful ambiance as I close out the message today. But I just want to finish asking you a couple questions. The first thing I want to ask you is to hold on to that rock that was under your seat. Just as a reminder. Maybe just keep it for this week and then toss it. That's fine. But just keep that as a reminder. And I want it to remind you of this. What belief in your life do you need to deconstruct this week? What's something that you're unsure about? Something that you have questions about? Something that concerns you? Maybe it's something that you heard, an argument that someone gave, and maybe you thought for a second, yikes, that's convincing. Maybe maybe he's right. But then maybe you just shove that feeling down because you don't want to have to do the, the hard work. You don't want to travel that long road of going through everything you believe because it is, it's a long road and it's hard and it's difficult. It takes a lot of effort and a lot of reading, but it's important. Here's another question. Where do you or someone you know, where do they need a personal experience with Jesus? You see, it's amazing because the Holy Spirit can take an experience between someone else and us and transform it into an experience between them and Jesus through us. And we don't have that power in ourselves, but it's through our faithful sharing of what we know that the Spirit can take that and use it to break through even the hardened, hardest of hearts. And maybe it's not in that moment, and maybe you leave that conversation depressed and dejected because they've laughed in your face, but you don't know what's next for them. And for them, that could mean they wake up in the middle of the night feeling especially convicted. Or maybe something happens and they experience a rock-bottom moment and they remember what you've said to them, and they remember that there's a Jesus, a Christ, a Messiah who loves them and wants the best for them. Where do you or someone else need a personal experience with Jesus? And so as as we close out here, I I just want to pray for us as we transition back into a time of worship and just keep that, that stone clenched tightly in your hand. Just keep that as a reminder of Jesus, the foundation of your faith. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for this day, for the word that you've given us to share. Lord, we know that there's blessing that comes about when your word is read aloud. And Lord, we know that even the hardest of hearts can be broken through and penetrated by you your power and the power of your spirit, Lord. I just want to thank you for the example we have of Thomas. And I pray that we are all like Thomas, where through our doubt, we can experience you fully and use that to create an amazing, amazing network of evangelism and missions, Lord. It may not be everyone's calling to evangelize, Lord, but we know we're commanded to anyways. Lord, just give us the strength and the wisdom as we go about this week and and try to dig into some questions that we might have, maybe confronting some doubts that we have. Lord, help us to faithfully deconstruct and reconstruct with a foundation based in you. 
Lord, I would just pray that that no one feels embarrassed or sad or angry when they have doubts, Lord. We know that it's, it's a good thing if we make it a good thing. When it's the end of the story, it's scary. But Lord, we know that you will take our doubt and transform it and give us a stronger faith than we could have ever imagined. Lord, we just pray this for us this week. In your holy and powerful and mighty name we pray. Amen.